we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, which is the second to last of our series in 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, or um, you can turn to it, the Church Bible, it's page 1220, uh, either that or boot up your gizmo and browse to 1 Peter 5, and we shall be just going through these verses together. As soon as you get into this, you discover that it's addressed to leaders, and it's addressed to leaders who are under pressure. We can see that from the very first verse there. He says, to the elders among you. Now, the whole of the letter, as I'm sure you're aware, is written to Christians who are being persecuted. And so we assume that these leaders are also being persecuted and being hounded for their faith. Now, I understand a leader to be anyone who takes responsibility for finding God's potential in people and having the courage to develop that potential. And that requires daring because it's all about people. It's all about how God is at work in people and whether as a result of our actions they become more like Jesus Christ. I expect you know the phrase, he who thinketh he leadeth and hath not a following only taketh a walk in the park. <laughs> Peter here is talking to leaders who are responsible for churches, but nevertheless under pressure. Now, to describe somebody as an elder has a long and illustrious tradition. The word elder goes way back into the Old Testament where the elders of the town would sit at the town gate to adjudicate on tough legal cases. We also know from archaeology there were elders in ancient Greece, there were elders in ancient Egypt. And so when someone became an elder, they were joining a noble tradition that stretched out, even in Peter's time, for more than 2,000 years. Anyone who takes responsibility for feed it, finding God's potential in people and who has the courage to develop that potential... Now, these elders were initially the people who were usually the founding fathers or the, the key influencers of a new church. And it's easy to think, well, okay, this is addressed to elders, so that, that doesn't apply to me. So for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to do a doodle around my welcome sheet or I'm going to text my friends or something. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. This passage tells us how leaders should behave. And leaders are not only accountable to God, they are accountable to us. Did you know there's a, a tradition amongst undertakers, funeral directors, when a funeral takes place in a church? And it's this, if you go to a, a same would happen here, when there's a funeral that takes place, the coffin is brought in by the bearers. And have you noticed it's always brought in feet first? And the concept behind that, at least in... In, in you know, years past. The concept behind it is that as that person arrives at the altar, so they stand up and have to face God to account for their lives. All that is, unless you happen to be a minister or a vicar or a rector or a bishop or a cleric of some sort, then you're brought in headfirst. Because the idea is that when you get to the altar, you have to stand to give an account to your congregation. Scary thought, eh? How many undertakers follow that tradition now? I'm really not sure. But that has been the tradition in, in years past. 
Theodore Roosevelt said this, it is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of good deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, who strives valiantly, who makes mistakes, who at the best knows the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails daring greatly. Claim that for our sportsmen if they don't win. And Peter is talking about people like that. He's not talking about the armchair experts who think they know how a church should be run or think they know how an organisation should be led. No, no. He's talking to people who are actually there on the front line, on the sharp end, doing the task of leading God's people. And he starts with saying who he is. Now, let's face it. This is a, a general letter, so it's going, to be, it's going to be hoiked around all sorts of churches um, in the Middle East. And the, many of these people are not going to have met Peter. So he has to identify himself to answer the obvious question, why should we trust you, Peter? And verse 1 tells us this. I appeal to you as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings who will share in the glory that is to be revealed. It tells us something about his past, something about his present, and something about his future. In the past, he was there when Christ was crucified. He saw Jesus Christ brutally murdered. He saw it happen. And he also witnessed Christ after he was raised from the dead. In the present, he says, I'm not merely someone who analyzes the church. I'm not a critic of the church. I'm one who's actually on the sharp end doing the job. I have captained a team and built churches. And in the future, I will share in the glory that has to be revealed. So, guys, I'm heading in the same direction as you. And I will one day be part of that fantastic climax that God is going to bring to planet Earth. My Christmas present this year from my family was a ticket to a website. It's a website called masterclass.com. And in masterclass.com, they have masterclasses from all sorts of people you might want to learn from. Do you know what? I can learn the violin from Itzhak Perlman, no less. Famous violinist, if you've never heard of him. <laughs> I can learn cooking from Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, we filter the language. I can learn composition from Hans Zimmer, he who composed Batman and Sherlock. I can learn magic from Penn and Teller. I can learn tennis from Serena Williams, no less. And we respect these people because they've been there and done it. And that's precisely what Peter is being here. He's been under pressure himself. So it's from that place of painful experience and of church leadership that he's advising Christians, especially elders, how to behave in order to survive. 
So if he tells them who he is, he then tells them what he does. And Peter's headline news for anyone of influence, especially church leaders, is there in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is in your care, watching over them. My friend, if you carry any role of influence, however small it is, God calls you to be a shepherd of his people, to watch over them, to be their protector, to be the one who looks to him for wisdom and looks to them to care. Even in times of pressure, in fact, especially in times of pressure, be shepherds of God's flock that is in your care. While I was preparing for this, I I kind of had this crazy image of a huge umbrella that covers God's people. If you're a leader, that's you. You're protecting God's people from the storm. You're being the one who stands between them and the influences that could otherwise draw them away from Christ. It's what we do. You see, then Peter talks about how we should do it. And he gives three ways that we enhance our influence, particularly in moments when we're under pressure. He says, care for God's people, not because you must, but because you are willing. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over people, but being an example to the flock. So he says, be willing there. We should serve Not because we have achieved a title or got the salary. We should serve because we are willing to obey our master. And then he says, be eager. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Now, now actually, that word that we have behind dishonest gain in Peter's original text is a hard one to translate, and it carries the idea of, of meanness. Uh, there's, a, there's an ancient writer who uses it, and he describes someone like this. He's a man who gives himself a double portion when carving the joint. And he counts the half radishes left over from dinner in case the servants have eaten any of them. <laughs> He's mean. He's tight-fisted. This man is not putting heart and soul into serving. So Peter says, look in your leaders for people who serve their heavenly master and are eager to do so. And then he says, be an example to the flock. Not lording it over, because God's trusted you with sheep who are vulnerable and sometimes wayward. This is genuine servant leadership. It's not an exercise of power. It's an act of service. That's why we use this term ministry to describe it very often. Now, at the helm of our nation is the prime minister. He or she is the servant of the nation, at least in theory. And a servant leader is willing to do the humble job when it's called for. 
Because if you are a leader, you are no better or more valuable than any other people in your company or charity or church or group. I was reading, actually I was only reading this morning, um, the write-up from a lady who is a very influential speaker in you know, business circles. And one of the first times she had to address a whole crowd of business leaders, she was told that the conference was at sea level. Now, what she understood, or the people who came were at sea level, what she understood by that was S-E-A level. In other words, she thought, I'm going to be talking to the real sort of the earth characters. I'm going to be talking with, with people who are just coming off the streets and they, they need some help about, she was going to talk about being vulnerable uh, and, and so on and so forth. Actually, what the guy meant when he said that was C-level, the letter C, meaning they're all CEOs or CFOs or COHs or they're all chief of something or other. And she was scared stiff. Anyway, after a conversation with, with someone else, she said, you know what I did? I imagined that they were all eight years old. <laughs> and as she looked out into the audience... She spotted one man that she had met herself in an Alcoholics Anonymous class a few years before when they had both got sober. And all of a sudden, she said to herself, these are just people. It's people all the way down. Serve not because you must, but because you're willing. Serve, not pursuing dishonest gain, but be eager to do it. Not lording it over people, but being an example to the flock. Well, it's all very well talking about leaders. What about the rest of us? Well, Peter goes on to describe what the rest of us should do. He said, in the same way, you who are younger should submit yourselves to your elders. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. And yet our culture tells us to do exactly the opposite. You know, be better than the next person because you know you can do it. Humility is weakness, we're told. And then you'll be worth something and you'll be happy. And I think we sometimes kid ourselves that we'll be happy if we win just one more victory. No, if I lose a stone in weight, or if I do a bit more exercise, I'll turn into a happy person. That's the fake news of self-sufficiency. Anyone on their deathbed will tell you the things that make us happy are the, are the deep relationships of life. And those are the losing of self-sufficiency. And along with that goes the fake news of a meritocracy. Now, the message of meritocracy is you are what you accomplish. It's the philosophy where, where the talented are chosen and moved ahead on the basis of their achievements, so that in the end, only an elite enjoy the opportunity of being truly fulfilled and happy. The myth of meritocracy is that you can earn dignity by attracting fame. You know, 100,000 followers on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or when you perform on a stage to thousands. 
The emotion of meritocracy is, is conditional love. You can earn your way to being loved by people. The theology of meritocracy is you are not a soul to be valued, you are a set of skills to be maximized. And the evil of meritocracy is that people who have achieved a little more than others are actually worth a little more than others. And what bothers me about this message is that it is pumped so heavily in schools, in universities, on our media. And we hear it all the time. You know, you can achieve whatever you want if you work hard enough. If you're su sufficiently committed, it's there, it's yours for the taking. That is not true. It's fake news. And yet it's presented as a, as a self-evident philosophy we are not even supposed to question. I would love to play tennis like Serena Williams, but I know it will never happen. And what concerns me is that it's my generation who's been pushing this message. And that we have been setting young people up to fail by teaching them a meritocracy. You see, here's the tough question. Where do I go when what I aspire to becomes impossible or is taken away from me by illness or by people who I thought were my friends or just by the random circumstances that are beyond my control? How will you deal with great difficulty? Who will you be then? You see, these are the people that Peter is writing to. Christ followers who are being persecuted. They were not able to achieve what they wanted in life because society was against them because of their faith. Christians being pressurized. My friends, we, we need to have a backstop position for the times when we work our socks off and don't achieve what we long for. And one of the keys to that kind of resilience comes out of the last verse, and Ros is going to talk about that in a moment. You see, Christian resilience looks rather different from the, the, the quality that you find in the textbooks. Christian resilience is finding peace and fulfillment and meaning even in the most dire of circumstances, because our loving Heavenly Father is with us in them too. Christian resilience starts from the assumption that God cares for me, that you matter to God. People on their deathbed will never tell you they wish they'd spent more time in the office. They will tell you that they wish they'd formed longer and deeper relationships, especially relationships with their family, even if their family had let them down. 
So when we, when we drop into these crushingly bad moments in life, we can either be broken or we can be broken open. And we all know people who are broken. They've endured some pain or some grief and they get smaller. They get angrier, they get resentful, they, they lash out. Because pain that is not transformed is transmitted. But other people are broken open. And that's where Peter is going so many times in this letter. Hardship reminds us that we, we are not the people we thought we were. The theologian Paul Tillich, he put it like this. Suffering takes people beneath the busyness of life and reminds them that they are not who they thought they were. What suffering does is it carves through what you thought was the floor of the cellar of your soul. And it carves through that, revealing a deeper cavity below. And then it carves through that one, revealing a further cavity underneath. And you come to realize there are depths to yourself which you never anticipated. And in those depths, only spiritual and relational food will satisfy you. You can't take your pride, your bravado, into those places. Your skill set won't be enough. These are the moments when you discover your heart. Rosie and I have been married for 40 years today. Uh, <laughs> it is our 40th wedding anniversary. 14th of July 1979 is when it actually happened. I should have put a picture up there for you just to... I didn't, I forgot, sorry. And in that time, we've had, we've had moments of great triumph and huge joy as well as great sadness and huge tragedy. And we've discovered that God is with us even when life is at its most turbulent. I met Rosie when I used to go and mend her car, which broke down with monotonous regularity. <laughs> and we struck up a relationship and things went on from there, and the rest is history. But I can honestly say, my friends, we have learned more about the Lord in the tough times than in the times when life was going swimmingly well. Because when everything in life is fine, I, for one, can easily forget the Lord. It's the kind of thing that Louis de Bernier uh, describes in his book Captain Corelli's Mandolin. One of the characters, Dr. Yanis, is an old man and he has lost his wife. And one day he talks with his daughter about the relationship he had with his wife and, and her mum. 
And he describes it like this. Love is not breathlessness. It's not excitement. It's not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. It's not the desire to mate every second of every day. It's not lying awake at night imagining that he is kissing every cranny of your body. Now, don't blush. I'm telling you some truths. That's just being in love, which any fool can do. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossom had fallen off our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. That's what the human heart yearns for. And that brings us to verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I'm going to hand over to Rosie now. And she'll share two incidents from our marriage where we discovered the truth of this scripture. One was a decision and the other one was a tragedy. Hello. Um. I'm going to take you back to the summer of 1999, that's 20 years ago, and we were living here and we were enjoying life in Chichester. Ian was the senior minister, very ably assisted by Ken Benjamin. Uh, the church was growing and we were well on the way to planning this building where we're all sitting now <laughs> because the church was originally just that part of the building over there. Uh, with the south and the north hall and kitchens, etc. Uh, Christopher, our son, was 16 and our daughter Esther was 13 and they were both at Bishop Luffer and they were doing well. And then, out of the blue, we had a letter from Victoria Baptist Church in Eastbourne to say that they had a vacancy for their senior minister and would Ian even consider entering into discussions with them about it. I have to say, my first thought was, oh no, I don't want to go, we're settled here, and there was just this awful sinking feeling. Anyway, covert discussions took place, and we made some visits to Eastbourne, and Ian was starting to believe that this was God's will. But my view was the opposite. I was very clear that I didn't want to go. And my reasons for this were anxiety. And it was worry about Chris and Esther's future, their education, their spiritual lives. There was virtually no youth work in the church that we were going to. Um, my job, I was a social worker, and I loved that job. And also leaving friends, many of whom are here today. And all of these were valid concerns. And Ian and I came to the position where really we were at an impasse. 
he wanted to go, believing it was God's will, and I was feeling, no, I didn't. And I was quite upset about it all. And I clearly remember a conversation that took place in the kitchen in Lincoln Green. And Ian said, well, if you feel that strongly, maybe we'll have to think again. And actually, that just stopped me in my tracks because deep down, I knew that I didn't want to oppose God. So, Ian was very patient with me. This didn't happen overnight. It was over a period of a few weeks. I, what I realized had happened was that I'd allowed my anxiety about the unknown future to dominate my thinking. And I had to come to a position where I said, Lord, if this is your will, I'm going to trust you with all the things that I'm worrying about. And it was amazing that that change of heart actually meant that the anxiety began to lift and it was replaced by a growing sense of God's peace. And this verse, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, really proved to be true. And as you know, we, we left and then we came back <laughs> after 18 years. Fast forward from that time, we left in 2000, um, seven and a half years. Our daughter Esther was in her third year at university in Glasgow. And she came home for the Christmas break. And within days, it was clear that she was extremely unwell. And she was admitted to the general hospital as an emergency on Christmas Eve. And to our astonishment, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. It was to her astonishment as well. And the next two years of our life proved to be by far the most difficult for us as a family. Unfortunately, Esther's diabetes was <laughs> unstable. But she was very independent, she was very determined, and she was a very private girl. She just ploughed on with life. She kept going with her course. She had a vibrant Christian faith, and she experienced the most amazing answers to prayer um, to do with her, her course, to do with her accommodation. Uh, one stage, she was going to Cambodia which we were unsure whether that was really a good idea. She was going with a group from her college, and it was to do with her course. And I remember this lady rang up. She was a church leader, leader's wife in another church. And she said, you're on my heart to pray for you. And so I explained where we were at. And she said, did you say she's going to Cambodia? Oh, and the, the significant thing that was this was on her birthday, um, 31st of May. And uh, I said, yes. She said, I've got that written in my prayer diary to pray for Cambodia today. She said, I don't know why I put that down. I thought it was to do with another couple that we knew. But now I know that it's because I need to pray for Esther. And I just thought, thank you, Lord. That was so amazing. And God's care for her was very reassuring for us. However, there were some dark times. Her health was not good. Um, 
she was having some difficulty completing certain aspects of her course, not so much the written work, but the practical work, um, because she, she needed to be able to um, converse with, with patients. Um, and also, uh, her housing situation was difficult. And what I found was that anxiety was my constant companion. And actually, with good reason. And what I found was that anxiety was controlling me. It wasn't helping Ian, it wasn't helping Esther, and it wasn't helping me. And the only way I was able to manage my worry was to depend on knowing that God's love for her was far greater than even the love that we had for her. And that wasn't just a one-off thing we had to say. We had to repeatedly say that. But what neither of us expected was Esther going into a coma in her sleep, which happened in uh, February of 2009. And sadly, two days later, she passed away without regaining consciousness. It was extremely difficult, but we are confident that she's now enjoying perfect health in God's presence. It's left us with deep pain and just so many unanswered questions. So our anxiety was replaced with confusion. And slowly, and I have to say, it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time we came to realize that casting our anxiety on him included casting our confusion on him. Ken Benjamin spoke at Esther's Thanksgiving service, and he spoke on Isaiah's words, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And how true that is. And by God's grace, we are... He is still helping us to live with this mystery. And sometimes God's care for us is shown by him not revealing why. We can still ask why, but he may choose to keep that a secret and not reveal it to us. And you have to accept, and we had to accept, that he is God and we are not. And he knows there are times when it is to our benefit that we live with mystery. So we have proved, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you in many circumstances, but probably those were the, the two that were the most difficult, and I'm sure there's going to be many challenges in the future, but it does work. Thank you. Thank you.